maybe the best boss that you ever worked for. Lots of us have had occasion to work on, work for multiple different bosses and supervisors and so forth through the years. Think back about the one that in your memory is the best one that you can recall. If you think about him, I would suggest to you that this guy was probably a good guy, a nice guy. He was kind in many ways. But I also would be pretty sure that you would rate him as fairly strict. He's the kind of guy who wouldn't put up with a lot of foolishness. He was nice. He was a nice guy and very helpful and kind, courteous. But he expected you to do what you were told to do, and he didn't put up with a lot of foolishness. And, and if you didn't toe the mark, there would be a price to pay for that, right? I think that's probably typical of the good boss that you would describe. I think you could say the same thing about a teacher. If you think back about the teachers that you've had and the ones that you would rate among the best, uh, you'd say the same thing, very nice, kind, but they would not let you do anything wrong. They were strict disciplinarians. And that discipline, that strict discipline, was one of the things that made them a great teacher. Good, but also strict. I think we'd say the same thing about parents. As all of us have had the occasion to view many different families through the years and see some parents that we would rate as really good parents, you would, you would say the same thing about them. They were good to their kids, really good to their kids, but they were strict. Uh, they, they insisted that their children do what they were told to do or else there was certain punishment that would follow. In recent years, there's been this trend, I think, in parenting to, to be very tolerant. And a lot of times you see, I think, parents making the mistakes of trying to be best friends with their kids. Parents are not best friends. Parents are parents. Kids are kids. And there's a, an authority relationship there. And good parents understand that they should be good to, and kind uh, to their children, but also that they need to be strict and punish uh, if there's disobedience and so forth. Now, I've said all of that in order to try to illustrate a point that the Bible makes about God. And the statement that we want to base our lesson on this morning comes from Romans chapter 11, verse 22, when it says, Behold the goodness and severity of God. We want to talk about God's goodness and severity. And I think it's really critical that we see both sides of God. We're going to do that for just a few minutes uh, this morning and hope we can say things that will be an encouragement to us all. Thanks for being here today. Let's stop just to make sure that you understand we're glad that you're here. We really appreciate the opportunities to come together to worship God. We pray that he's glorified when we do this. But we also enjoy and appreciate the opportunity to be together with one another and the encouragement that we draw from that. And we thank you for being here to, to serve as that encouragement to the rest of us. Thanks for being here today. And a special greeting to all who are visiting with us. We have a number of visitors today. We're glad that you've come our way. And we want you to know that. We want you to come back whenever you can. Thanks for being here today. Let's talk about the goodness and severity of God. I want to suggest just a few well-known incidents from the Bible that I think display these two important attributes of God. One of them would be all the way back to the beginning, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And I think we see there that God was really good to man. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God saw everything that he made. Now, this is at the end of the creation week. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was 
very good. It wasn't just good. It was very good. In fact, I would argue that it was perfection. God made everything perfect. If you were able to see things as they were at that time, it would be perfect and without flaw. Now, in addition to that, it wasn't just a perfect physical environment. He placed man into that setting. In chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So God had a perfect creation, and he put man into this perfect creation. Let me ask you a question. How's your life? How are things going? Well... Pretty good, I guess. Things are going pretty good, but my car hasn't been running real good, and I'm worried that there's going to be some serious repair bills on my car, you know. Oh, man, I hope that transmission's not going out. Oh, that'd be awful. That'd be very expensive. Things are going pretty good, but my... And, you know, that leak underneath the kitchen sink is about to drive me crazy. I've tried several times to get that fixed, and... I just can't make it stop leaking. I'm, I guess I'm going to have to call the plumber. And I got some health issues going on too, you know. There's some health issues. I've uh, uh, been to the doctor. He, he's hinted at some more tests. They may be, there might be something seriously. I'm doing pretty good, I guess. Well, isn't that what we would all say? Our life, I mean, we live in a blessed time. We have got it made. We really live in a blessed But even in, in our circumstances, there's still some little things that are not perfect, not ideal. It, it, wouldn't everybody say that? Not Adam. Not Adam and Eve. If you ask Adam, how's your life, man? He'd say, perfect. Perfect. I mean, there wasn't anything wrong with the situation that Adam was in. It was perfect in every way. Did you notice, too, that in this verse, it, it talks about the fact that God had direct communication and instruction uh, with man in that Garden of Eden setting. God was so good to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But when they disobeyed God about those instructions concerning eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know what he did? Chapter 3, verse 16, beginning, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And then to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. When Adam and Eve sinned, although God had been so good to them, when they sinned, he drove them out of the garden of Eden. He drove them out of that paradise situation that they were in. And he exposed them and all generations which would follow to the reality of pain and death in this present world. God was really severe. He'd been so good, but he was really severe to Adam and Eve. And so we need to see that uh, in that familiar story. We need to see the goodness and severity of God. Let me suggest to you another incident. You remember the story of Lot and his family as they were living in the city of Sodom? We know the story well. Lot was Abraham's nephew. They had grown prosperous. They had herds and flocks and 
So they finally separated from one another because, simply because they had been so prosperous in every way God had blessed them. God had been good to Lot, along with Abraham. Lot took his family and moved. He saw the well-watered plain of the Jordan. He moved his family to Sodom. They lived there, but the city of Sodom was an incredibly wicked city. And God finally determined that he was going to punish them uh, for the great wickedness that existed in the city of Sodom. But to just Lot, a just man, he sent messengers to warn him of what was coming. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 12, beginning, the men said to Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. So God's going to send punishment. But he's, he warns Lot ahead of time, get you and your loved ones out of here because this is coming. In fact, uh, they even directly guided them from the city. came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. So what would you say about... And God had blessed Lot in many ways leading up to this. What would you say about this episode, though, directly? Well, he was good to Lot also, right? Instead of punishing Lot and his family along with everybody else that was going to be punished in the city of Sodom, God sent specific warning and guidance. Get out. Don't look back. God was good to Lot and his family. But you remember what happened. In verse 24, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire, but Lot's wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. God was good. But we see, certainly in the case of his destruction of Sodom, and even in his specific punishment of Lot's wife, we see the severity of God. You've got to see both sides, right? God is good, but God is severe. Let me suggest to you one more Example from the Old Testament. Think with me about how God led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. Uh, we know this story well also. These are all familiar stories to us. We know that the Israelites had gone down into Egypt and initially had a very good existence there when Joseph was a high-ranking political figure in Egypt. They prospered very well. But over a course of many years, several hundred years, Their privileged position in Egypt had turned into a state of slavery. And they were suffering as slaves under very harsh conditions. Uh, And so God, because he loved them, sent Moses to lead them out of bondage. Uh, And they did. Uh, God blessed them overwhelmingly and with powerful signs, the plagues that were brought upon the Egyptians. And even as they were fleeing from from Egypt as they crossed the Red Sea on dry land and so forth. God's goodness on full display in the case of leading the children of Israel out of bondage. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, Moses said, But because the Lord loved you, he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loved them. And God was so good to the Israelites. You'd have to agree that God's goodness was really on display in regards to the Israelites. But as they approached the land of promise, the land that God had promised to give them, you remember they sent some spies into the land, 12 spies. And when the spies came back, they all unanimously agreed, it's a great land for sure, there's no doubt about that. They even brought back some examples of the produce of the land that were incredible. But they said, we can, 10 of the spies said, we can never take it. The the people there are mighty warriors. Their cities have high walls of defense around about them. They're even giants in the land. 
It's, it's, in fact, it would be so impossible. When we were up there, we felt like we looked like grasshoppers. And we think they thought we were grasshoppers. They, they're so huge and powerful, we'll never be able to take the land. Joshua and Caleb, of course, said, yes, we can, because God's with us. But they wouldn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the ten spies, and they refused to uh, go into the land. And so God made a declaration against them. He'd been good in all of his deliverance, but when they refused to t- take his promise and go into the land, Numbers 14, verse 29, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land. Pretty severe, wouldn't you agree? We know because it had all, the, the numbering had already taken place by this time that they were something over 600,000 fighting men in Israel. You'd have to think that the number of the population of the nation of Israel was well over a million. Some estimates that you read would suggest maybe as many as two million people were among the Israelites. Everybody 20 years and older is going to die because of your lack of faith. Only exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses and Aaron weren't going to be allowed to go into the promised land because of sins they'd committed. God was good to them, overwhelmingly good to them, but he was severe when they refused to obey him and display faith in his promises. Well, there's some examples. There's a lot more examples. We could go to many other examples in the Old Testament. Here's three that you know well. And there's so many lessons to learn from these three specific cases. But what we surely take away at a minimum is God is a good God, but God is a severe God, right? It's so clearly on display. All right. Now then, the most important application of this principle comes in regards to us. In regards to us, God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You want to talk about goodness. The goodness of God never has been so completely manifested as it was in the sending of his son Jesus to shed his blood and die on the cross of Calvary so that we might be redeemed from our sins. The goodness of God is just amazing. You know Romans 3, verse 23, when it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Emphasis here on all. That's you. That's me. That's all of us, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we often link that with chapter 6, verse 23, when it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, since you've sinned and I have sinned, what do we earn? We make the point so often. Wages are what you earn, right? Well, when payday comes around on Friday, you expect to receive your wages, right? There's an agreement. You work, you get this much for your work. You work, you earn, you receive your wages. Well, that's the very picture here. What have you done? You've sinned. What have you earned because of your sins? The wages of sin is death. What you deserve because of your sins is to go to hell and suffer forever in that fiery torment. That's what you deserve. That's what you've earned. But the gift of God, his goodness, has been fully made clear to us because of Jesus Christ, his son. You're a sinner. You deserve to die. But God has made... Salvation possible. A great gift from God. In his enormous goodness, he has made salvation possible through Jesus Christ, his son. 
Now, I want to stress to, uh, to us all that God did this when we were completely undeserving of it. He did, God did not send Jesus because, you know, those people are really wonderful people. I mean, those people are just so awesome. I'm going to send Jesus because how wonderful these people are. They didn't do that. In that same book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, beginning, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God did this while we were yet sinners. We didn't deserve it. We talk about the grace of God. Oftentimes we define grace as the unmerited favor of God. That's a, that's a fine definition of grace. And right here we see that, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we, des not when we deserved it, when we were such wonderful, worthy people, God did that for us. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, I would simply say, God is good, wouldn't you? From that, wouldn't you say, God is a good God? God is a God full of goodness and mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness and long-suffering and patience. I mean, the adjectives can flow on and on in regards to God. God is good. There's just no mistake about that. But don't be lulled into thinking that God is different now than he was back in Old Testament times where we were reading earlier. It's the same God. We don't live under that same law, but it's the same God. We serve the same God. And that God who was good, so good in Old Testament times, but also so severe, is the same God that we serve. And he is so good to us, but don't begin to imagine that he's not also still a severe God to punish those who are disobedient. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, where Tritt read for us earlier, says, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. God will surely send punishment. Sort of as a side note, did you hear in the news this week where the Pope in Rome announced that there is no hell, that if you're a bad person, you just sort of fade away, disappear. The, the Pope now, actually even in contradiction to Catholic Church doctrine, says there's no hell. The Scripture says there is hell, and that those who are disobedient will be punished eternally. God will severely punish the disobedient. He always has. I want to take you to the text that we used as the basis of our lesson this morning. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 22. In this context, Paul has been describing how God cut off the disobedient Jews. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, that is, the disobedient Jews, severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. The goodness and severity of God. We definitely need to understand that, to appreciate the reality of that, and to act accordingly seems to me, and you might agree or disagree, I, I think you would probably agree if you think about it, it seems like there's a trend in modern preaching to emphasize God's goodness, his kindness, and his grace, and almost completely exclude any teaching about his severity. And that's a mistake. We need, the, we need this balance. We certainly do need to speak of God's goodness and his grace. 
But we, we're just missing the mark and doing a great injustice to those here, who hear our message if we don't also stress the importance of his severity. We go back to the first century and we look at how some of those inspired preachers preached the message. We might go to the very first gospel sermon. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter had convicted the audience that they were the murderers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it says in Acts 2, beginning verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter to the rest of the apostles, men and brother, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Think about that. When they heard the message that Peter preached, it says they were pricked in their heart. Why? If it's just all about what God's going to do for you, if it's just all about his goodness and his grace, why were they pricked in their heart? Why weren't they just happy? Oh, God loves me. I'm so good. I'm so great. God loves me. God's gonna, God's gonna do all this for me because I'm a wonderful person. No. They didn't feel good about themselves. They were pricked in their hearts. They said, what shall we do? What can we do? They realized that, that they were sinners before God and in, in danger of His eternal punishment. What shall we do? And the answer was given to them. But Peter's message certainly just didn't emphasize the goodness of God. He also warned of his severity. We can look, look at a lot of examples. I'll give you one more. In Acts chapter 17, we have the Apostle Paul, and he was in the city of Athens. Now, Athens was a center of idolatrous worship, and there were idols in the city of Athens to every imaginable kind of thing. And, and Peter, I mean, not Peter, excuse me, Paul, as he was in Athens, Paul in Athens saw that and was moved and began to teach the people and his message included this in Acts 17, beginning verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So God's near us. God blesses us. It's through God that we live and move and have our very being. But notice, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. God is good. God blesses. We live and move and have a very being because of God's blessings. But there's a day of judgment coming, and we need to prepare. That was Paul's message. That was an inspired message. That's, that's how the inspired preachers of the first century preached the message. And if we fail to emphasize both aspects, the goodness and the severity of God. We're not getting the job done. There are a lot of Old Testament examples. We pointed out just a few of them. There are a lot of Old Testament examples of God's goodness and severity. But there's, God's never been as good to anyone any other way than he has been to all of us, all of mankind, through all of history in the sending of his son Jesus. That's the ultimate sign of God's goodness. And we are the beneficiaries of that goodness of God. But don't fail to realize that unless we obey him, he will punish us, the goodness and severity of God. It's worth thinking about. It's an important lesson for us to remember. What's your situation this morning? Are you right with God? Is your life right with God? We talk about things necessary to do in order to have an initial forgiveness of sins and to come into a relationship with God as, as a child of God. 
That involves hearing the truth and believing it, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Jesus, being baptized for the remission of sins. If you've not done those things, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you need more information, if you have questions, if you want more study of those topics, just say a word. We'll be glad to study with you. This is a decision you need to make. If you're a Christian already, but you've been unfaithful, Lord, you need to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help at all, let us know while we stand and sing this song.